This episode of Arizona Spotlight is supported by the Arizona Theatre Company. For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, meet a long-distance runner and soil scientist who's celebrating her indigenous roots in an inspirational way. Learn about a sacred time for Muslims that honors the birth of the Prophet Muhammad. And multi-talented artist To Renee Wolf has reflections on the return of the All Souls procession to Tucson and tells about an exciting new collaborative project with colleague Will Clipman. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. The company behind outdoor clothing and gear called Patagonia is now producing a series of short films that are available online. They're called Run 2, and the theme is runners finding activism through sport. The most recent episode is called Run to be Visible, and it tells the story of Lydia Jennings, a Pasquayaki and Weechol soil microbiologist. As she was earning her Ph.D. at the University of Arizona, Jennings stayed motivated by imagining what her graduation day in 2020 would be like. But the pandemic changed those plans when the graduation ceremony was canceled. So Jennings decided to celebrate in her own way and tapped into her roots as an ultramarathon runner by designing a 50-mile run across southern Arizona. She dedicated this run to other indigenous scientists, as she explains next in this interview with Emma Gibson. I noticed in your film you say you're running for visibility. Why did you choose that word? Why visibility? For me, when we talk about visibility in the year 2020 is the year of George Floyd's death, right? His murder. For me as a Native scholar, when I take classes, I often take classes that are giving credit to a lot of old white men who have really actually learned knowledge from Indigenous peoples, but those Indigenous peoples were not credited. And as many institutions are looking at who are who do they have in the department? Like, I just have yet to see a lot of visibility of Native scholarship in the way that it should be. Why is running important to you? Running is important to me because it is a tradition that everyone in my family has done. My brother and sister sat me down when I was like 12 and told me I had to run. And that was going to be my sport because that's everyone, what everyone in my family has done. And also it's just an important way of like emotional and spiritual and mental health, Right. Of course, the big one for me is is running and knowing our ecosystem. And so as I run and I get to see where rivers form and the different soil colors and different vegetation that emerge. And so it's a really important part of this observation process. That's a really critical first step of being a scientist, right? As you mentioned, you're a scientist, you're a soil microbiologist who restores mining waste. What does that really mean? The work that I do is more of like learning from the land of how it recovers after mining has been there. And so I've worked with a mining company, observing what their processes have been to reclaim and restore this land that has been impacted by mining. Um, The particular site that I work on is land that has been leased from a tribal nation. So that also adds in this kind of tribal capacity of it as well. And they were instrumental in deciding how much soil and what seed mixes was selected. And how did running kind of introduce you to your career, to to mining and that future? 
growing up in the Southwest, going out and running around the land, visiting family and seeing a lot of like mines and wanting to know why they were there was really important. And like understanding why mines were disproportionately on tribal lands that a lot of nations didn't want. And that's not the case. Some tribes do welcome extraction, right? That's their individual sovereign nation choice. But it was just a really interesting process of learning about about this and like, what can I do with this love for science to really understand um, and how to develop solutions to repair our lands? You know, in Arizona, we're one of the largest copper producers in the United States. And so as much of the nation is looking towards switching to solar energy, copper is going to be really important in that. And so I don't want to bash all mining because I don't think that that's productive, but I think it's understanding what are the concerns? How do we repair the land from mining if that's going to happen? And also how do we make sure the communities that are being most impacted also have a seat at the table, whereas they traditionally have not. In the film, we kind of follow along with a Pasquayaki family near Twin Peaks, and we kind of get a look at how mining has impacted that community. Can you tell me a little bit about what those impacts really are? It was really interesting to be involved with this film and, you know, again, understand my, my own tribal nation's history better in relation to mining. And so there's a friend's father, um, Alfred Abina, who's an amazing attorney general for the Pascoyaki tribe, and just shared a little bit about his experience as kind of in the earlier parts of his life when he was raising my friend, living near very close proximity to a mine and thinking about how that might be impacting their future health. And he talked about some of the land being blasted and the house shaking and thinking about the air quality and, you know, increased asthma and all of those aspects. Um, really understanding that mining has been an important part of our history, but, you know, questioning of if it's going to be part of our future, how are we going to be more directly involved in the decision-making. And I think it's important to note that though I'm Pascoyaki, so I had a Pascoyaki person, it's really important that we recognize that a lot of the mining that happens in Southern Arizona is on Otham land. And Otham, there is many Otham scholars who have also contributed to these conversations. Um, one of them being Celso Viegas, who I dedicated, I believe, my third mile to in the run. And you mentioned the, um, how you dedicated miles to, to different scientists in a run. You know, what was this run for? It was in the celebration of the completion of your PhD, right? Yes. Since my graduation, um, class of 20, woo woo, uh, was canceled because of the COVID pandemic, I had to create my own ceremony. Let's be honest, getting through a PhD is really hard. Because it was canceled, I had to figure out my own way to bring that joy and bring that celebration. And being a runner, an ultra runner at that, um, running just seemed like the most natural way to do so. And so this run was my first ever attempt at a 50 mile distance. The area that I chose was along the Arizona trail. It's also where the Rosemont mine is proposed to be. And then I chose 50 people, 50 indigenous scientists who have inspired me, who mentored me or whose scholarship I cited in my PhD dissertation. And And that was really important to me because again, native people have been fighting for our land rights, our ways of knowing, and our existence for hundreds of years. But the other part is, I see this film as like a love letter to Tucson. Well, I know when I first watched the film, you mentioned Mr. Urbina, the the attorney general for the Pasquayaki, and I kept seeing faces or names from this community. And so that was always really nice. And it had a, it had a good sense of, of, of home, I think, for people who are from this area. But throughout the film, you also talk about this conflict that some people have to pick an indigenous way of knowing 
versus being a scientist. What do you say to, you know, budding scientists who are feeling drawn this way, but feel like they have to be indigenous or a scientist, that they can't merge the two? You know, I draw this inspiration from nature. Thinking about hair. Well, you know, hair individual strands can be very strong and can withstand getting certain tensions, but it's actually when we braid hair together that's going to be much more robust and strong to any kind of pulling and tension. And so I think that's very true as well in thinking about knowledge systems. We can use something like settler colonial science methodologies in relationship with uh, traditional ecological knowledges and our indigenous ways of knowing. We can braid those together to have much more resilient um, in future environments. And I think, in my opinion, that's actually the future of science. Um, and so I, I really think as many budding scholars come out there, that it's a, it's a really bright future for you. Lydia Jennings was interviewed by Emma Gibson. You can watch the short film Run to Be Visible now on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. For a majority of Muslims around the world, the third month of the lunar calendar is known as Rabi al-Awal. It commemorates the birth of the Prophet Muhammad in the year 570 CE. And this year, it began on October 7th. Unlike Ramadan, the ways that an individual may observe Rabi al-Awal can vary greatly. Here to explain its significance to Tucson's Muslim community is Irfan Sarwar Sheikh who is a dedicated supporter of interfaith dialogue. There is a saying of Prophet Muhammad, if you dip your finger in an ocean, take it out, the amount of water that sticks with your finger is the is like compared to the ocean, is the amount of knowledge that God has given to us compared to what is available out there. But however, he said, we are social beings. We have to have a system to run our lives. And... There are things we figure out on our own. There are things that are simple enough to understand. Others we figure out with experimenting. And there are things we may not understand on our, on our own. So at that point, then we have divine guidance. that You know, you have to stick with certain things, else you're going to run yourself into difficult situations where you're going to ask God for his mercy. And I'm going to say, hey, that was the mercy. I gave you my, out of mercy, I gave you the guidance. <laughs> Now, all this, if you're not humble, you're not going to learn anything. The people who are not humble don't learn. And uh, one of the reasons, according to you know my faith, God says, if anybody has even an iota of Arabic word, takabur, which means arrogance, he's not going to enter paradise. Hmm. Now, he didn't say Muslim, Christian, Jew, whatever. Is there anybody who does it? How does this holy month better the members of your faith? What does it add to your life? This month, Rabi al-Awwal, or the first spring in Arabic, is important because the Prophet was born in this month. He passed away in this month, and he was forced to uh, migrate to another city. It reminds us of somebody's struggle to make the world a better place, and the one who while doing this, had to deal with opposition, severe opposition, at times tortured. He saw his 
companions getting killed for saying very simple thing that just listen to what God is saying. He didn't force. He said, you don't have to. But he said, this is what my message is. But I think he was stepping on some toes, and that caused all this. Well, in English, when we use the word prophet, it usually means someone who is said to be able to foretell the future. But I feel like that is not an accurate description when we talk about the prophet Muhammad. He wasn't a Nostradamus who was telling us what would happen. It was more about wisdom. But you tell me your reflection on that. Right. So Prophet Muhammad, according to our understanding and faith, was a messenger. So repeatedly in the Quran, God says he's a Nazir and Bashir, means he is the one who has brought good news, and he's the one who is warning you of the consequences in this life and in hereafter. So he was a messenger who was a teacher and who was an example. He exemplified what he taught. And we take, by the way, all other uh, biblical personalities to be the same. As part of their journey convincing human beings to abide by divine guidance, they sometimes, I feel, to convince them, they have to make some predictions as well. So we read in the Quran, people said, well, tell us about this. Tell us about the Sabbath. What is Sabbath? You know, because if you're a prophet, if you're a messenger, your God should help you with the answer. And he would say, well, this is what happened in the tribe of Israel. So they had to talk talk about things that had gone before, and they had to make predictions. For example, he predicted when Iran defeated the Roman Empire. So the polytheists of Mecca rejoiced. They said, it's a sign that we are going to defeat these people because Roman Empire believes in God. Iranians don't. We don't believe in God. So it's a sign that we are going to defeat Muhammad and his companions. So a verse was revealed in which God says, three to five or six, so many years, the Romans are going to overcome Iranians. And it's going to happen on a day when Muslims will rejoice as well, and it's going to take place on a lower level of earth. So that war that took place on the Dead Sea is the lowest level of on earth. It took place on the day of Eid, when Muslims were rejoicing anyway, and they defeated Iran. So I think it was not to impress people, but just to tell them, you know, you got to listen. I feel, Mark, the good people, how far they have to go to do things to just convince. Can you just listen to me? How would you explain the differences between the way this month and the way the Prophet Muhammad's words are interpreted by different groups of Muslims? Human beings are created different, right? Even individuals from individuals. We differ the way we perceive things and the way we reflect and we, we act. So Muslims, uh, a bulk of the Muslims, um, we all, first of all, take this month as an important month. It's not like Eid or Ramadan or end of Ramadan where there are there is a command to do certain things. Mm-hmm. But it's an important month. We all take that as an important month mm-hmm. because a messenger, an important personality was sent in this month. So the month is not important. The personality is important. Now, Many Muslims have fear that things deviate from the actual path slowly, step by step. So we need to be very careful what we are doing. So they don't celebrate. They don't, I want to emphasize on the word celebrate. Yeah. I think they, they observe it. 
But some people feel if we celebrate our own birthdays and we throw parties on some other occasions, why not when Prophet Muhammad was, it's his birthday. So they have chosen to celebrate in different ways. Two parties, get together, have processions. In some countries we have seen in past 30, 40 years that it has gone way out. Prophet's companions never celebrated his birthday. I guess for because they were so focused on the mission. Now, I'm one of those who wouldn't celebrate his birthday, but I definitely take advantage of this month to talk about his personality, his mission, his works, his sacrifices. But I also realized, you know, they weren't just celebrating throwing parties. Stay focused on the mission. For example, birthday of Jesus, peace be upon him, Christmas, is also important to us. But if we celebrate Prophet Muhammad's birthday, shouldn't we celebrate Christmas as well? Maybe we should. So these are the questions that our next generation is facing in America, growing up here. But then also, is it okay to throw parties and drink and do certain things that are not even part of Jesus' teaching? Would probably, that would be going too far. Same case with Prophet Muhammad. <laughs> I think we have to stay within certain limits. I cry when I talk about Jesus' peace upon him. As he's a 33-year-old person, he's a carpenter, maybe a very good carpenter. Maybe he could have built Ikea of his time. Would you like to die when you're 33 and in white trouble? I ask people when I go to churches and classes. You won't. So what was it that compelled him to do this? Yeah. Right. So Prophet Muhammad was a rich man. He was a businessman. Uh, his uh, boss, who was a female, was very happy with him. His, his piety and his honesty and his skills. She proposed him. You want to marry me? She was 15 years senior to him. Khatija. So he accepted that she became his first wife. He was 25, she was 40. So he was rich. He was called Malikut Tajar, or King of the Merchant. If I may say, he was probably Bill Gates of his time, or something like that. I spoke with Irfan Sarwar Sheikh, a Tucsonan who promotes interfaith dialogue and learning as a way to build bridges among us. So Renee Wolf is one of the busiest and most diversely talented artists on the Tucson scene. Acting, singing, dancing, composing, and painting are just some of the forms of expression that she is known for. Last weekend, Wolf played an important role in the return of the All Souls procession, helping to guide the prayer urn on its journey, as well as singing during the closing ceremony. I spoke with Wolf earlier this year about her latest album, called A Wolf by Any Other Name. But next, we'll talk about a new collaboration that has emerged from her long friendship with Will Clipman, a multi-talented percussionist and mask maker. I began by asking her to describe what it felt like to once again be part of the All Souls procession last weekend. My group, the Urn Spirit Group, the Urn Attendants, we actually processed and met the Urn on Grande and then stood before the crowd and then started to process down the streets. And it was exhilarating and a wee bit unnerving to be in 
a crowd that large. There were some places along the route where it was very sparse, and there were other places where it was fairly packed. Most of our group had masks on, even though we were outside. And it felt really deep, and even though the route is technically a truncated route, it felt incredibly long. It felt like it went on for days, like it was never, ever going to end. And I think it was because it was just freighted with the weight of so much intensity of people having lost people and the joy of coming back together again and what everyone brought. There were two things that I did this year that I've never done. When we were back at the annex changing, they had two police officers come in tactical gear with, I would assume, is um, a sniffing dog, a dog who has a job. And as we were getting ready, as they passed me, I called them over and I said, you know, are there names? that you want to have put in the urn. And one officer just kind of looked a wee bit disconcerted that I was engaging him. And the other officer, something flitted across his face and he automatically said, yes. And he gave me the name of someone. And I didn't ask the relationship, but I put the name in my basket to go in the urn. And then when we were on the street at Grande, there is a police officer ahead of us that leads. And I always go up and thank them for what they're doing. And this year... I said, you know, is there a name that you want to add? And he said, yes. His wife had just lost a relative. And he's like, oh, do you have any paper? He goes, wait a minute. I'm an officer. I've got a pad. And he pulled out a pad and wrote the name and gave it to me. And I've never thought to do that in all the years I've been doing it. But this year, because I'm so conscious that we all have lost someone, it felt deeper and richer and harder. I felt the weight of it. And so did Randy, who was pulling the urn. He said the urn felt light, but the weight of carrying it, he said sometimes it almost knocked him over what he felt was coming from the crowd. I really believe that when we gather and do this, that it changes, it shifts something like a, a ripple of, of a magical incandescent pebble that goes into the ocean of life. Torine, I loved your album. I talked about it on the show and we played some music for people. And now you're moving into a new stage where you're collaborating with a local musician of great renown. His name is Will Clipman. And I want to know why you're working together and what does it mean to you as an artist to collaborate with him? Will and I have known each other for a very, very, very long time. And we're also in a group called Temenos Quartet with Amachik Dabney and the fabulous Heidi Wilson on sax. We've not been together for years because of many things got in the way, but I love working with Will. And we have a really deep and potent ancient connection that both of us kind of recognized without either of us saying it. And I love his amazing skills. I love the depth of his heart. And his musicianship is just phenomenal. He did a one-man show at an invisible theater, telling stories about the masks that he makes and myths. And we were getting together to do a, a duo piece called Will and the Wolf. <laughs> and I just had the sense that there was more that we could do together. And we just started talking, talking about things. And I always wanted to know what happened on the eighth day, you know, the seven days of creation. And I'm always like, what happened on the eighth day? And so that's always been a metaphor of what is the next thing? What happens in that unknown place, in the liminal spaces of our existence? 
I like exploring those places. And I think that's where creativity comes from. We started telling stories back and forth. And we also started sharing stories about our childhood and and things that had happened to us. And we have some really interesting synchronistic stories that you would not think looking at us. We look like we could be like, you know, the polar opposites. But there's some really deep, deep places where we connect on kind of a soul level. And one of the phrases that I use for him, and it's only with him, is he is my atavistic friend. And it's a combination of percussion and guitar and singing and spoken word and text that we're writing. And it's a story of choices. What are we going to be ruled by? In the face of our desire and something that we want, how far are we willing to go to get what we want? And are there limits? And should there be limits? And what kind of person does that make us? What lines should be crossed and what lines should be honored and not? Tell us about the song we're about to hear. Now, this is from your album, A Wolf by Any Other Name. Yeah. So it doesn't have Will Clipman playing on it, but nope. you took it somewhere else. There are stories that, that hummingbirds, they're sacred creatures because they can fly backwards and they hover in the air. <laughs> yeah, they can. You know, yeah, sure, fierce. sure. They're fierce little creatures. So hummingbirds are, are, are very magical and potent totems in many cultures. A song called Hummingbird, and we we do that and put it in the context of the kinds of questions and things that we're talking about. Is he necessary? Is he like breathing to me? Moon doesn't ride on his shoulder. He is not the circumference of all I see. Her lover has left her and will not come home. In the Amazon, a woman holds a hummingbird to her breast. Jewel-throated, full of vibrating music, she wonders how she can destroy beauty like this. Is he necessary? Is he like breathing to me? Moon doesn't ride on his shoulder He is not the circumference of All I see I live with the weight of gravity upon me I live with the weight of what I cannot articulate That was Hummingbird composed and performed by Torine Wolf. Her new multimedia collaboration with Will Clipman, called Will and the Wolf, will be on stage at the Invisible Theater Thursday through Saturday, November 18th, 19th, and 20th. There's a link for more information, including Invisible Theater's COVID protocols, on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show originates from the AZPM radio studios. AZPM's interim news director is Christopher Conover. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Thank you to Arizona Theatre Company for their support of Arizona Public Media.